Last Sunday, we began our, our prayer team ministry, and I want to remind you that after worship today, as we conclude our service, our prayer team members, some of them will come forward, and I'm quite sure there are several of you here today that could use some prayer, could be prayed for. You and someone with you could lift up something to the Lord in prayer, and so I encourage you as we dismiss this morning uh, to be aware our prayer team members are here and invite you forward to a moment of prayer with them. Sometimes I still pinch myself and wonder, did it really happen to me? I could see it happening to John, what with him being such a great guy and literally the disciple that Jesus loved. But me, why me? What makes it even more, the maz- um, more, what makes it even more amazing is that six days earlier, Jesus had called me Satan. Really? Get behind me, Satan. That's exactly what he said to me. No wonder, now that I think back on it, knowing what I know now, I understand. But back then, no. I thought Jesus was getting downright morbid. I mean, all he seemed to talk about was death. And then finally he said, you know, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to die. And I had had enough of it. I said, Jesus, no way. I'm never going to let it happen. Not you. And that's when he said, Satan, get behind me. And he looked right at me. As I slunk away that day, I figured that I'd be riding in the back of the van from then on. But no, six days later, Jesus said, Peter, come with me. Let's go up to the mountain. When we finally got up there, I was worn out, frankly, and sleepy. And I was just about to go to sleep when it happened. Jesus changed. Transfigured is what they say now. He changed. He metamorphosed into, into I'm not sure exactly what to say. But he changed. In fact, later, John put it like this. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. He was shining up there on the mountain. I couldn't really look at Jesus because he was so bright. His face was so like, like the sun. His clothes were whiter than any white I had ever seen. Then I realized he was talking with Moses and Elijah. To see, all, to see Jesus all lit up like that, now that was amazing in itself. But then to see Moses? Why, he lived a thousand years ago. And Elijah? I couldn't believe it. Moses, the deliverer. Now, I know they were supposed to come back, but me? I never thought I would see them. I still don't know why I said it, but you know me. I run off at the mouth sometimes. And so I felt like I had to say something. I said, Lord, it's really good to be here. If you'd like, we'll be build three booths. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Even as I was running my mouth, this huge cloud came over and enveloped all of us. And as it covered us, we heard the voice of God thundering, This is my son, 
whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. James and John and me, we were terrified and fell down flat. I'm not sure how long we were there on the ground. Seconds, minutes, I don't know. My eyes were shut and I was lying stiff as a board. Trembling almost. Then I felt his touch on my shoulder and he squeezed me and said, Peter, it's all right. And I heard him say, John, James, get up. Don't be afraid. Jesus touched us and we were okay. I opened my eyes, not sure what I would see, but only Jesus was there. Slowly and quietly we got up and made our way down the mountain. I never mentioned it much to anyone at all, at least not until after the cross. This morning, you know this story that I'm telling, the story of what we call the Transfiguration. It's told by Matthew, it's told by Mark, and it's told by uh, Luke. This morning, I want to highlight one little detail in this story of the Transfiguration. Matthew tells us that the disciples were scared to death, scared so badly that he uses the word terrified and says they fell down on the ground when they had this experience. And then he says something that Mark and Luke don't say. He says that Jesus came and touched them. And Jesus used the very words that angels use when they encounter humans, and humans are so terrified. Jesus said, don't be afraid. I like that statement, Jesus touched them. So I got out my Bible and began to look through Matthew, wondering where else does it say that Jesus touched somebody in the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, if you have your little uh, outline, that worship folder, I encourage you to turn there and uh, jot down some things, because I think these could be helpful to you in the days to come. I would encourage you, in fact, at some time this next week to pull this out and review it as well, because I went through and and looked up in, in the gospel where Jesus actually touched somebody, and I'd like to share that with you now. The first story, not surprisingly, is in the action section of Matthew. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, you know it starts with the birth of Jesus. It gives us some background information. And then, pretty quickly, we read about the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. And then in chapter 5, we begin that great section you know about, the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed Are and the Beatitudes. And there are three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, of the Sermon on the Mount. After that, we come to the action section of, of Matthew. Chapters 8 and 9 are Jesus busily doing miracles, and they're all kind of crammed together right there. And we read these stories. And in Matthew chapter 8, after the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, enough teaching. Now I'm going to go out and heal people. And so Jesus launches out into this uh, healing ministry. And early on in chapter 8, we find the story of a a leper, this nasty, oozing, pus-filled human being, who is supposed to be segregated out in the village, not in the village, but outside the village. He's supposed to stay out there. If anyone comes around, he's supposed to say, unclean, and keep people away. But what we find is he's kneeling at the feet of Jesus. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And, of course, Jesus is willing. And it says Jesus touched the leper and made him clean. 
And that sort of speaks to me that Jesus' touch can cleanse you. Jesus' touch can cleanse you. Listen as I read what it says in Matthew 8.3. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I choose to be made clean. And immediately the leper was cleansed. What a great story about Jesus' touch cleansing someone. Now, the next story of Jesus' touch is about Simon Peter's sick mother-in-law. There are lots of mother-in-law jokes, but not in the Bible. And the scene is that Jesus comes to Simon's house. The mother-in-law is there. She's in her bedroom with fever. And Jesus goes in and touches her, which leads me to say, Jesus' touch can soothe and heal your body and soul. In fact, the Scripture puts it like this. It says, Jesus touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to serve him. Amazing. Jesus' healing touch. Another time in a synagogue, a ruler came to Jesus, and he was brokenhearted because his daughter had died. And he had the incredible faith. Now, this is a Jewish leader. We give them a lot of trouble in Scripture. But here's a synagogue leader who comes to Jesus and says, You know, Jesus, if you would, I believe you could bring my daughter back to life. What faith? And so we read in that case that Jesus' touch can actually give life. Listen as I read the story. There came a synagogue official who bowed down before him, saying, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Would you like to hear another story of the touch of Jesus? I have another. You already know this one. Uh, It actually happens quite a bit in the Bible. Uh, But here's one occasion where Jesus is traveling along and there are some blind guys. Now, it says they were following him. How they managed that, I'm not sure. Maybe they followed the noise. But they wanted to get heard above all else, so it says they yelled. They got loud and they said, Have mercy on us, Son of David! And as I see the touch of Jesus on their eyes, it reminds me, Jesus illumines us. The touch of Jesus can illumine you. Here's what it says. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, be it done unto you. And their eyes were opened. Jesus' touch can illumine you. And then back to Matthew 17 where we read they're up on the mountain, they're terrified, they're in this tremendous cloud, they've fallen down with fear, and Jesus comes and touches them and says, don't be afraid. And it reminds me, Jesus' touch can remove our fears. Jesus' touch can remove our fears. Now, I suspect this morning there are some people here that are afraid. Maybe afraid of your financial future, maybe afraid physically of your future, but you have some fears. I I suspect there's some of us here that don't see very well. I'm not talking particularly about your physical eyes, but as you look down the road, you're not making the right decisions, you don't have the right wisdom, you need some clarity. I suspect there are some of us here today that are just not clean. You may not have leprosy, but you know it, you're not clean. You're filthy, in fact. What about Jesus' touch? This morning, as I was... Thinking about these passages, I realize Jesus' touch can cleanse the dirtiest life. Jesus' touch can soothe the most troubled soul or body. 
Jesus' touch can bring back the dead. Jesus' touch can literally remove fear. Jesus' touch. There's a fellow that's written a book, very popular Bible study. I recommend it. It's called Experiencing God. Who wouldn't want to experience God? And I think part of the popularity is not just the value of the curriculum, but the title alone, Experiencing God. Who doesn't want the touch of Jesus upon us? Now, my question to you today is, have you experienced God? I think you have. When? Where? I think if you were to go back over your life, you can count times when you have experienced the Lord. You can say, well, I know in this time in my life, I think God did this for me or God touched me in this way. And I'd like for you to be reflecting about that today because I think we all want the experience of God. And if you have just one or two touches of God in your life, they can carry you a very long time. In fact, Simon Peter, this experience on the mountain, writes about it about four decades later. He's thinking back over his life. He's an old man. He's not going to live much longer. And he's thinking back about, when has God touched me? When have I experienced God? And listen to what he says in Second Peter. He writes these words. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by his majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, or this is my Son the Beloved with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from us when we were on the sacred mountain. Some four decades later, Simon Peter's reflecting on that moment when he experienced Jesus' touch. And this morning, I want to encourage you as well to reflect on that. Now, perhaps you're saying, Steve, what are the steps or what are the things I need to do to experience Jesus' touch. What's the formula, if you will? Uh, How can I uh, prepare myself, or what can I do so that Jesus might touch me? You know what? (laughs) I wish I could tell you. I would be highly suspicious of anyone who says, here's the secret to the touch of Jesus. I don't think it works like that. Jesus controls whom Jesus touches when he wants to. However, I think Jesus likes to touch people. There's ample evidence for that throughout the Scripture. Jesus is always touching folks. And so I believe Jesus wants to touch you. But I can't give you a formula or a secret to having Jesus touch you. I can share with you some things I know, and I can share with you some experiences of others. And I suspect, if you'll think about it, you could share your own experience too. I I jotted this down. I think it's true. The touch of Jesus comes at Jesus' will, not our will. The touch of Jesus comes to those in want, not those in wealth. The touch of Jesus comes to those who have surrendered, not to those who are successful. The touch of Jesus comes to those who are on their knees, not on their tiptoes. Those are some things I believe about the touch of Jesus. And I also believe Jesus wants to touch us. And when he does touch us, it changes us forever. 
I was deeply moved this past uh, week while reading the autobiography of Eric Clapton. And I want to conclude this morning by sharing from his book. Uh, he has a remarkable story. He was born in England. He never knew his father. He was raised by his grandparents. And at age nine, the woman he thought was his older sister, he found out was his mother. It was a pretty traumatic experience for him. He's a very much, I would say, an introverted man or boy and man. And uh, as he went through his moods and struggles in life, the only solace he found was in music, and he began to play the guitar. If you don't know who Eric Clapton is, let me simply say he's played with Jimi Hendrix, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, and he was a longtime personal friend of George Harrison. He's one of the biggest rock stars of our time. He's made millions and millions and millions of dollars. He's also spent most of his life addicted to heroin and cocaine and alcohol. It's a wonder he's alive. Uh, his manager finally got him to go to a rehab program back in the 80s in Minnesota. It's called Hazelden. And he went through the month's program and got out of the program and uh, tried to stay sober, couldn't, and turned to alcohol and began to drink heavily. And uh, during that time, he met a woman in Italy, and uh, they had some relationships, and eventually she called him and said, I'm pregnant. And so he decided I should be there at the birth of this boy. So he was there in Italy when she gave birth to a child they named Connor. And he said, it was amazing as I was there and held this boy in my arms, I realized this is just a miracle. And he was quite impacted by the birth of his son. He did not marry uh, the mother, but continued to have contact with Connor. And during that time, he was drinking so heavily, he said, I began to shake, and I realized my music was just going downhill. I couldn't play well. And he said, I realized if I don't do something, I'm going to die. And now I'm a father. I need to do something. So he checked back into Hazleton here in Minneapolis. Now, I want to pick up reading from his book as he talks about uh, going through this treatment program. And uh, the program's just about over. And here's what he says. Nevertheless, I stumbled through my month in treatment, much as I had done the first time, just ticking off the days, hoping that something would change within me without me having to do much. Then one day, as my visit was drawing to an end, a panic hit me. I realized that, in fact, nothing had changed in me and that I was going back out into the world again completely unprotected. The noise in my head was deafening and drinking was in my thoughts all the time. It shocked me to realize I was in this treatment center, a supposedly safe environment, and I was in serious danger. I was absolutely terrified and in complete despair. At that moment, almost of their own accord, my, knee, my legs gave way and I fell to my knees. In the privacy of my room, I begged for help. I had no notion of who I thought I was talking to. I just knew that I had come to the end of my tether. I had nothing left to fight with. Then I remembered what I had learned or heard about, surrender. Something I thought I would never do. Not with my pride. It just wouldn't allow it. But I knew that on my own I wasn't going to make it. And so I asked for help. And getting down on my knees, I surrendered. Within a few days, I realized that something had happened to me. An atheist would probably say it was just a change of attitude, and in a certain way, that's true. But there's much more to it than that. I had found a place to turn to, a place that I had always known was there, but never really wanted or needed to believe in. 
From that day until this, I have never failed in the morning to get on my knees and ask for help. And at the end of the day, at night, to express my gratitude for my life and sobriety, most of all, sobriety, I choose to kneel because I feel I need to humble myself. And when I pray with my ego, this is the most I can do. If you are asking why I do all this, I will tell you. Because it works. It's as simple as that. In all this time I've been sober, I've never once seriously thought of taking a drink or drug again. He's talking about his experience in the 1980s, so this has been some 20 years. Now, the story doesn't end there. As he got sober, he realized, uh, I'm a father, and I need to be a father. He'd never had a father. He'd never met his father. But as best he could, and with therapy and counseling help, he reached out to Connor and uh, embraced his son. And one time, uh, Clapton was playing in New York, a recording doing something there. So he flew Lily and Connor out to New York and put him up in a condo there and said, I want you to be here with me while I'm here. And so she was staying in this place with Connor. And one day he went and picked up Connor and he said, I'm going to take him to the circus. He said, I was terrified. I'm not used to being with a little four or five-year-old boy alone. But they went to the circus and had a fantastic evening. It was just wonderful. So he dropped Connor back off at the mom's condo and he went home to his apartment. Eleven o'clock the next morning, he got a phone call. and It was Lily and she was hysterical. And she said, Connor is gone. And someone had come in to clean the apartment or condo. It was an old place, and the window was left open. And Connor had come running into the room and ran right out the window and fell some 50 floors to his death. Clapton talks about how painful that was. He tried to reach out to Connor's mom and... Others, they got through it all. He also talks about how helpful his AA group was and how he would go there and they would surround him and care for him. And then they began to ask him to tell, tell his story. And so he did. He would just say, here's, here's my experience. At the end of that chapter, there's a paragraph I want to share with you. Because you see, as I read this story, and as I read of Eric Clapton getting on his knees... And surrendering, I thought to myself, Steve, how much do you need Jesus? How surrendered are you? You need Jesus a little bit? Do you need Jesus to get to heaven? Do you need Jesus to live your life? How much do you really need Jesus? Or, to put it another way, do you need Jesus as much as Eric needs to fall on his knees in the morning every morning? And fall on his knees every night and say, thanks, God. And without you, God, I'm not going to get through this. So Eric began to tell his story. And he said, one day I shared this experience with a group, and I'll pick up the reading from there. A woman came up to me after the meeting and said, you've just taken away my last excuse to have a drink. I asked her what she meant by that. She said, I've always had in the, in the little corner of my mind... I've always had this little corner of my mind which held the excuse that if anything were to happen to my kids, then I'd be justified in getting drunk. 
You've just taken away my last excuse. I was suddenly aware, writes Clapton, I was suddenly aware that maybe I had found a way to turn this dreadful tragedy into something positive. I really was in a position to say, well, if I can go through this and stay sober, then anyone can. And at that moment, at that moment, I realized there was no better way to honor the memory of my son. How are you honoring Jesus today? How much do you need Jesus? How surrendered are you to Jesus? I guess the question is, isn't it, do you need Jesus at all? And if the answer is yes, the follow-up is, how much do you need Jesus? Let's pray. I'm going to give just a moment of silence here and opportunity for you to pray. As God spoke to me through these stories this week, I was thinking of the words, I need thee every hour, I need thee every hour. Oh, every hour I need thee, dear Lord. I was thinking of the words, I surrender all, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. This is a moment to surrender to Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the way that you work in our lives. You are a God who is far removed, far distant. You are the creator God, the omnipotent God, the omniscient God. You are wonderful and awesome and holy and righteous. And yet you are also the God who has chosen to communicate your love to us in Jesus. You sent him here not simply to touch our world, but to touch people one by one. And we ask again for your touch on us. And we surrender ourselves to your touch. We do need you, Lord, every hour of every day. And from this moment on, Lord, may we have a better sense of our dependency on you. And may we live in the light of that dependency, that touch. We thank you for the story we've heard of Eric Clapton's sobriety, and we pray your continued blessings upon him. And for each person in this room, Lord, who struggles in some enormous way, May we yield ourselves in the morning and cry out for help and at the end of the day be able to say, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And we thank you now. Amen.